Fit Nation. It's Fit Nation. Awesome.
meeting is being recorded. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you're leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like those who are in your inner circle or your family feel like you are a burden to them or you're embarrassed to tell them how you feel, call the hotline at 1-800-273-8255 and press option one. Someone will take care of you. Do not make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps to include the Military Broadcast Radio app and check out our family of shows. They're all, all headlined by DJs who are veterans and then I always have great content on there. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. This will, this will keep you up to date with the, our latest news episodes and, of course, stories of our guests, speaking of which. This show is part of a Memorial Day series for the month of May, where you're bringing in fellow service members and family members of those who have lost, lost uh, to who have lost fellow people or their brothers and sisters or family members to share their story. Our next guest has continued to serve for the past 19 years. He began his career in the Marine Corps as an infantryman, where he served as point man in the Battle for Fallujah in 2004. For those of you who do not remember, this is one of the largest efforts in the battle in Iraq. He later transitioned into the National Guard as an intelligence warrant officer. Christian has completed three combat tours and multiple humanitarian assistance missions. So without further ado, let's welcome Christian Dominguez to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Christian. Oh, thanks so much for having me, man. And honestly, like, uh, it's been a long journey to even get here. And 19 years later, I've only started doing these kinds of engagements in the last two years and almost opened the doors out to my healing process. And, uh, and it's really starting to open the doors to a lot of my brother's healing process of just realizing, guys, it's okay. Like we could talk about this stuff. And for me in the last two to three years, it's really changed my entire life. So I appreciate you having me on to, you know, to serve as another, as another step in my healing process. I can talk to other people, talk to strangers about kind of what I'm going through, what I've experienced, and to honor some of those that we lost. And 19 years goes by in a blink of an eye, as you, you can tell in the military, uh, where you started out as a young man and <laughs> with great dreams and aspirations, and you turn old really quick. Uh, your body takes a lot of beating, especially as a Marine Corps infantryman uh, at that point. In uh, 2004, I know uh, in Ramadi, I was with two four Marines, and uh, there were a lot of kicking doors and pushing, pushing the walls and go, 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 go all the time. Don't, don't ask questions, just do it. And uh, I'm sure with one eight, you were doing the same things in Fallujah just a few months later in November during the big uh, uh, roll up and into there. So I know your body has been through hell and <laughs> I know what you're doing now. Kind of use just some uh, leeway to kind of relax a little bit and heal some of them uh, physical wounds, but the mental wounds are still there, of course. Uh, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your story from why, from why did you join the Marines in the first place and all the dudes you met and uh, those who uh, we are no longer with. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in New York. Um, I was in like 10th grade during 9-11 and in Long Island, I was able to see the smoke from the sky, but not someone who could really conceptualize what was happening. The United States was kind of blind to all our politics, what was going on. So like no one really knew. But I, I didn't have a good track to college. I wasn't that kid that was studying. Like I you know, had one book that lasted me the whole high school career. Like there was like one page of notes. Like, you know, you start off your career, like you write your name at the top of the page. This is the day one. I'm going to do something so good. Like by day three, you stop studying. So I didn't really have a good path to passing 
And, um, and I had a buddy who joined the Marine Corps and I said, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. And, you know, during that time, it's still right. No different than it is now, just different platforms that like you still wanted to feel pride and you wanted to feel wanted and appreciated. And, you know, the Marines were the ones in the uniform walking around the mall. So I said, this is the one you want to do, you know? Um, so I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, I went to boot camp August, 2003 and, and I deployed to Iraq in June, 2004, right? It was such a quick turnover. My senior guys had returned back from, from Mosul, uh, from, they were in there in 2003 and we joined, I went to school of infantry. I, I got to my, to the fleet in like May of 2004 and I deployed three months later. You know, you talk about kicking down doors in Fallujah, this huge battle, but in reality, like you were so scared of your senior guys. Like we never had downtime that I was way more scared of the guys behind me than what I was going to kick down the door. Like I can win inside the house, but those ones, you start messing with them too much. You got additional duties, you got fire watch and you know, they, they have a wider left and right limit for what they can do in the fleet than in like a, a controlled environment school or something. So, you know, the crazy thing about war and combat is like all of us, right? We have such a tight connection to those we lost that we served with, but like, my best friend who, who died that I'm going to talk about, like, I actually only knew him for like two months, right? This is like a crazy thing. I knew him for like two months in the real world, and then we're in combat. We never even had a beer together. So it's so crazy that, you know, 19 years later, the strongest connections I have in the military, those from those few months in Fallujah, um, and there's been some I served with for 15 years later that still don't have the same connection as those guys that were kicking down the doors and beating their bodies up like the rest of us, you know? And like you said, so, uh, it, only take, it only takes like a week of hanging out with some dude, maybe got KP with him or something, or had to do something on the ship together, and next thing you know, you're brothers for life, and that's what happens. That's it. Yeah, you might play spades a couple times, talk some trash, and next now you're blood brothers. Right. So, um, so my first deployment, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. We didn't know the politics. We actually went to Ramadi in 2004. There was a whole bunch of politicking going around like, hey, there's a thousand fighters in this city called Hit, and they're in Rawa, then they're in Ramadi. So, like, we were kind of chasing these operations, but no nothing happened with us. So, you know, we're writing our letters home to this, you know, we went to the, this battle of Ramadi in 2004, but nothing, there wasn't even a one person in the whole city. So we're like, oh, okay, like, this doesn't seem like a big deal. And then Fallujah happened, and the same kind of thought process was in our head, like, okay, you know, yeah, I'll pack my day pack, but I did this three times already. But then New York Times reporters came to my platoon. You're like, what are you doing here? You know, and of course, the battle for Fallujah also happened in like May, the first attempt. Right. And like we didn't I didn't know any of that. We didn't know that this was a big thing or, you know, anyone is going to be a big stronghold. So, you know, you pack one pair of socks, you know, you, you might put a couple extra batteries in there. And, you know, the crazy thing about extreme combat is like, yeah you have what you think you're going to wear your gear at and then you go into this huge assault they're like hey here's smoke grenades you're like i don't have a pouch for that and here's this uh, breaching tool and here's grenades and here's a flashbang who just has a loose extra flashbang thing so you got things clanking in your cargo pockets right like grenades and everything just to try to make do and uh the assault started and you know the, the days in combat are wild like they're like microwave seconds is what I say. Like you put a, a hot pocket in there. You're like, this has got to be 15 minutes. Combat is like times 10. It's 
you know, when I talk about these stories, a lot of my memory is gone from them, but the biggest memories I have are just from when people got shot. And sometimes you're like, that was the next day? That's crazy. That seemed like it was a month difference between that. Um, so in my, in my platoon, uh, we lost four guys during that month, um, four KA, but, but probably like 20, were, 20 others were shot. Uh, we, we, we got to a point that we were combat and effective and it was like, there was the makeup of our platoon got really weird. Like we only had, you know, eight riflemen and like five saw gunners left and we were still trying to like clear houses. So the way it worked is like the saw gunners would all create a perimeter and every rifleman would have to go in and clear the house. Like that was it. And then we wound up getting combat replacements, but it was, it was a wild, it was a wild time. Um, so, you know, I'll tell the story about, about the four guys from my platoon, but understand that, you know, sometimes you were next to like a guy you never met before and he gets killed. And now you're working on him. You're like trying to patch him up. You don't even really know the guy's name. Like these are the weird parts of war. Like sometimes like a sniper platoon comes to you and, you know, I'll tell this one story. One time they asked for us to, um, Hey, go give these snipers some security. They don't have any security in the basement level. They're going to be up top shooting. Okay, cool. So the sniper's name was Nick Zalkowski and he's on the roof, just aiming in and I'm laying next to him shoulder to shoulder. And I was about to ask him a question. I was like, that's so cool. You're a sniper. And as I started talking, he got shot in the head and I'm the only, you know, there's like two other people up there. And, um, you know, it's almost disheartening that I feel like I was one of the last people this guy's like looking to for aid or something like you try to do the single best thing you can do, but you know, I, I don't really know him. And, it's difficult telling their stories. And it almost feels like it's not even my job to tell their story. I feel like I don't rate to tell their story because I wasn't necessarily close to them. So I think what I'll do is I'll talk about the four guys in my platoon that we lost that were really close to us. Um, I have to go in order here. So like November, November 10th, right? Oh man, the Marine Corps birthday. You should see what that looks like in Fallujah. They will bring in an AAV in the middle of a firefight and drop a cake off in the middle of a main supply route. Enemies shooting at the cake. There's rounds everywhere and you're going to go get the cake and you're going to go eat it. Like that's the thing, you know, like they don't mess up. They don't mess up with that. So I remember um, this, the sun came up on 10 November and this guy, Nate Anderson, the streets quiet, the sun started to come up. No, it's like the first time no one's shooting. And, uh, and all of a sudden, as the sun starts to peak, you just hear him let out a happy birthday, devil dogs. And the street, like Marines come out of the rooftops, like from everywhere you can see, like, yeah, like screaming, right? And then that night we wound up getting ambushed down this alleyway. And uh, and he actually wound up getting killed. And there was a Marine there, his name was Aubrey McDade. He lived, but he got uh, the Navy Cross for going in there and saving um, two other Marines that were shot but really brutal stuff because, you know, he was the first casualty that we had, you know, as you get up there, there's such a disparity in war between dead enemy and dead United States name tape or whichever branch it is, you know, you would see the dead enemy and you're like, you know, you're kids still, right? You're 18, 19 and you do things like, Hey, where are your friends? Or like, you're trying to make light of some situation because what the heck is going on, right? Like my friends are, you know, doing Rubik's cubes at home or something. I don't know what the heck they're doing. And this is what we're doing. And, um, you know, really, really brutal stuff. And he was the first one that we lost. And 
when we went to Fallujah, we actually had kill numbers and we put them inside of our flat because we didn't want to say the names of people that were over the radio. So as you called in your CASI back, they didn't want to say Anderson was killed because they didn't want to mess with morale. So as they called it in, they just call your kill number. But like A is so early, it was in alphabetical order. A is so early, you just, you can deduce quickly. So we're all, you know, we hear 1K, you're here in the nine line. You're like, you know, kill number three. And you're like, holy crap, like, no way. How is it even possible, right? Like, we thought we were, you know, invincible. Like, what's going on here, you know? And and it's just the, the crazy thing is just the lack of coping or coming together as one and saying, guys, this is what happened. Of course, this is sad. I'm here for you, brother. Let's do this. Like, in 2004, it certainly didn't go down like that. You actually just didn't talk about it. You just, you know, the way I tell the story is like, you know, when you when you got called out to the principal's office, your other buddies were there and you just walked past and you locked eyes like like you just knew something went down. No one's going to talk about it. And this is the eyes of 19 year olds. Right. Like this is how we interpret things going down. And um, that was it. Now, we never talked about it. 19 years later, like this stuff's only now coming out through these stories. Like it wasn't like we talked about it then or later on. So then, um, so that was like November 10th. And keep in mind that the dates are always uh, convoluted in there. Um, November 17th comes around for another another K in our platoon. This guy's name was Billy Miller. Um, there was supposed to be a sniper that was killed in a minaret. And um, we had gotten in trouble for our only rules of engagement in Fallujah were that you couldn't engage in mosques. And like, the city was erupting, people did what they had to do. And I think that some negative publicity was made during the battle. So they needed to take a picture of this dead sniper in the minaret to kind of prove to everyone like, guys, this is what everyone's using. Of course, this is why we engage in the minaret. Now, again, I'm like a PFC. I don't know anything. I'm just, you know, I'm happy to smoke the pine cigarettes and like just, you know, not have fire watch in the next hour. And we're pretty depleted at this point, right? It's actually seven days in there. I would say 15 guys had been evacuated or, or some, something like that. So as these, these patrols would go out, our numbers were always weird. It wasn't who you trained with. You're like, okay, you're my team leader today or you take my song. It was a whole hodgepodge. So Billy Miller gets to the, min the base of the minaret and then we had a New York Times reporter. His name was Ashley Gilbertson. And he was like, hey, I'm going to run up there and take a picture real quick, take a picture of the, of the dead insurgent, and I'll run back down. But we kind of talked him out of it. Billy Miller goes first. I go second. Ashley Gilbertson goes third. And as we're going up there, I'm, I'm say, halfway down. It's pitch black. But a tank shell had actually hit the top of the minaret earlier. So you can see, like, a little bit of light. And out of nowhere, you just – there was a guy in the prone, and he just the most patient guy ever. and Billy Miller walked right into his muzzle, you know, and took a couple of rounds to the face, pushed us all down the stairs and the entire process. Right. So it wanted to push us down so far that I had to leave there and want to kind of uh, regather to go back up there to go get his body out of there. But what a process, right? What a tactical disadvantage to try to get a body in a minaret. These things are so tiny. It's so, so small. Um, so really, really tough. That was that was Billy Miller. Um, he was from Texas. His, his dad was a retired cop. And this story actually 
is what gave my unit a lot of, I would say, ways to cope because Ashton Gilbertson would go on to write several books about my platoon. Um, and recently we did BB, I did a BBC um, episode with him. Um, and he was someone that's really able to keep our legacy going. Like these guys were with, we're 0311 Marines, like, you know, they could barely get through the alphabet, you know, like they weren't going to write a book or do some kind of show. But Ashton Gilbertson actually came back and he felt so much guilt from this story that he actually wrote a book called Bedrooms of the Fallen, where he went to all of the Marines and soldiers that died and he visited their homes and interviewed their parents for like a week and photographed their room on what their room, on how their parents maintained that. The last thing that a parent could kind of hold on to was this is how the room was maintained. And it's almost like, you know, if you go to Mount Vernon, George Washington's house, like George Washington's shirt is still on the floor, right? Like Martha didn't want to pick it up. She said, this is how everything left. This is how we're going to keep it. And a lot of the parents are very, very much the same. So we owe a lot to Ashley Gilbertson um, because he was able to conceptualize what happened and put it in real English, not jargon, um, to help tell our story. Um, so then November 19th was the most brutal day of my life. We wound up, uh, now we're about maybe 11 days into Fallujah, and they started to let civilians back in. I don't know who made the decision. It is what it is. And the way they would discern the civilians, but that they went through some checkpoint, is they put like a white emblem on their right arm or white emblem on their left leg and like you couldn't shoot them but the rules of engagement fallujah were so crazy you literally could shoot almost anything it was like pretty you've never seen something like that so i'm the point man i'm on patrol and we're going on down the street and i see two people and it was like so shocking because they weren't doing anything they were just walking on and i was like this is really weird i don't know what's going on like call for hire and like they checked them and they're like they went through the mayor's complex. They're blessed off on. Here's their ID. So we let them go. And those guys want to bunkering down in a house and cause havoc. We, I went to kick down the first door. And my best friend, Demetrius Gabriel, was like, hey, man, look to the, why don't you, uh, this one had a stairwell to the right. He goes, why don't you watch that? He's going to go in first. Then Demarcus Brown will go in for second. And then I'll butt and hook in behind them. And as Gabriel went first, Brown one second, I button hooked in. They kicked down one door and Gabriel was just mowed down. Just PKM in there, just put 15 rounds in him, laying down. Brown actually got shot and fell down. He popped back up and like looked at me and it was almost like he like came to and he fell on me. And, and you know, it was such a painful moment for me because I'm dragging him out of the house and just watching, you know, my best friend is just getting shot so many times and it's like, I'm 19, I'm petrified, I don't know what to do. Brown shot once, how do you make a decision in milliseconds to like, what happens here? Um, I, I take Brown out of the house and we had like 15 guys go in to get Gabriel's body out of there. But, you know, this guy's throwing grenades, no one else died in that house uh, that went to get Gabriel's body, but a lot of injured from grenades. So now I have Demarcus Brown outside and I'm trying to, tend to his wounds and I you know, ripped over his flak jacket and honestly all the death that we were surrounded with were, were always shot in the face I've never actually seen a body shot it was odd for me to see so I take off his vest and I was looking at and I was like this is so small like you're completely fine but it was just pumping it I almost couldn't believe in how it was pumping so we try to like patch him up but again right we're 19 
you got to put a pressure dressing on here. And, oh, it's a sucking chest wound. Let's put some plastic down. But how are you sticking plastic to blood? And the training, you never had to stick it. Blood's not sticking. And, like, we actually evacuated him, but he wound up dying on the way to the uh, trauma center. So, um, you know, really difficult stuff. Um, you know, Brown was from Martins, Martinsville, Virginia. He was my roommate for those few months. Um, and Gabriel was this complete freak. This guy was 28 years old, which is the oldest human in the Marine Corps. He just joined. He was like, he worked on Wall Street during 9-11. And his friend, uh, he was on the phone with his friends as the towers went down. This guy went to Brown University, Ivy League school. You know, he was, in a, he was the, uh, an Ivy League wrestler, just a complete freak. And uh, smartest guy I ever met, and they, he joined enlisted as an infantryman to go and fight for these dudes' honor. And uh, he actually w- took some shrapnel about four days prior. He got evacuated, and he came back in that day, and he was killed there. So, um, yeah, you know, his story always hit me hard because he just had such a huge impact on my life. But the reason I'm even here to talk to you today and how, I'm, how I've coped with everything was really that you have to sit down and have to make a hard decision, right? You can have a pity party. You define how long you need your pity party. What do you need for your pity party? How do you self-soothe? You got to play some video games. You need a little bit of alcohol. Do you need to work out? But then you have to make a hard decision. For me, it was that I had a lot of survivor's guilt. I felt like I was the point man. I was a PFC. We lost 22 from my battalion. Like I don't get to be the one who doesn't get shot. So I had a lot of guilt, and what I decided to do was study everyone that was killed and say the only way that I can progress forward is to understand the best attributes that every single one had and to give that back to the universe. So I've tried, I try to be well-read and well-educated like Gabriel. I try to have presence like Demarcus Brown. I try to have knowledge, institutional knowledge like Billy Miller, um, and just try to influence in the way that I think that they would want to um, to kind of portray that to the world. So I feel like I owe the world so much of them. And this is 19 years later. This is, the pollution was 18 years ago. Really crazy, you know. But um, that's where I'm at now. You know, I'm finally out of my bubble. I, I actually just did a podcast where I told all of my stories in depth. And um, that was freeing for me. You know, I, I did have to sit there with whiskey, right? I'm not, it's never the solution, but sometimes you got to you know, your stories are in compartments and they really, those compartments shouldn't, shouldn't really touch each other. But sometimes you got to open the drawer and say, this is the story I'm going to learn about today and remember and, and dig deeper and try to think of what did it smell like that day? And how did I feel? What was I wearing? And then you got to close the drawer, you know, cause you can't let that control every bit of you. And sometimes you can open it up to, you know, have a little pity party and then you got to aggressively move forward with everything, you know? Uh, that's a hard thing for anyone to go through never mind a 19 year old that just came in the military at that point and your your boots are still wet you're you're still being called boot by everyone around you at that point because you're less than a year in basically and uh you even you even get to pick on anyone else yet as you're already shooting at people and then that's a it's a big chore especially being the point man like you said and having those 20 uh, 21 th- uh, men that lost in 1-8 that year during just that battle not just that year that during a one month battle, that's a lot to put on your chest. And then, like you said, compartmentalizing that and then trying to live your life 
the best way possible through their act, the way they, their attributes. That's the great thing. That says a lot for you right there and your upbringing and what, how you have coped with this over the last 18 years since this occurred. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And it, it's, it's been a long time. I wouldn't say that I didn't have a long pay party in the beginning, you know, 2008, 2009, trying to find yourself. And, you know, you're, you're, you want to be, your body wants to be defined by this moment. It's, we went to Fallujah. They gave me a Super Bowl ring. I had a, I had a letter jacket of sort. Like you were almost honored for this in, in the Marine Corps or anyone, even in my 19 years, like I'm still defined by this. People automatically give me credibility or treat me with honor because I have this badge. And at the end of the day, it's the most traumatic time of my life. And, and it's, it's, it's odd. But you can say, okay, am I defined by this? Or maybe it's time to hang the jacket up and realize, okay, well, what did I get from this? And how could I attribute it to my life now? As opposed to being bogged down by it, because it'll drag through the freaking mud if you stay there for too long. You know, you really can't do that. So I think I was able to turn that around. And that's what I try to be the voice for a lot of the people that I serve with. My senior guys aren't there yet. And you know, I've never had to make a decision where I told the guy to go into a house and he died. I think that's a different um, battle to be fought. Mine was just like, I kicked down the door and I was freaking terrified. And it's the luck of the draw about which, which, house, which door you're picking. Um, and I have to deal with that. You know, it is what it is. But, you know, how do you do that? And how do you, how do you win? You're right. Your, your brain wants to go to bad places and you have to be uh, aggressive in and being proactive to not let that happen, you know? Right, and that's what we talk about at the beginning of the show. Every show I start off with, uh, don't go to the darkness, don't let the darkness grab you. And like you know, too many of our brothers and sisters have let the darkness grab them and gave in to that enemy within. So if we can help one, that one helps one, we'll get that domino effect and start helping a lot more. And I think, like you said, telling the stories and getting it out, it, it's a release for us, those who did did come home, it really left a lot over there. And as we tell these stories, it helps us and also helps those who love them to hear their stories and feel that they were loved and on the other side as well as at home. For sure. Yeah. And even normalize it, right? Like 2004, you weren't talking about things. You, I, you know, I don't want to blast the Marine Corps yet, but you know what happened when we came back? They said, people are like, hey, I'm having trouble sleeping. They go, oh, then why don't you guard the front gate? It's a 24-hour shift, and if you can't sleep anyway, why don't you do that? And and that's what happened, and it was very much frowned upon. The Marine Corps is very good at killing things. They're very good at it, and then anything else, they really struggle with trying to figure out how to move forward, right? They're still about numbers, and, and um, you know, guys were having issues, and it was like, oh, okay, well, are you going on the next deployment? Because if not, uh, you know. You're going to have to kind of go somewhere else. So I think we, we went through a lot of that stuff. And now it's just like, okay, here we are 18 years later. And I try to coach people up because here's the difficulty. Of course, we want to be there with people, but I don't think people are really proactive enough in helping each other, right? It's always like, hey, I'm here for you if you need me. But we really have to be conscious of being proactive and just helping our brothers, right? Or helping our sisters, like random check-ins with actual substance. Hey man, check in on you, man. Last time we talked, I know you did this. Where are you at? Where are you going with this? Anything I can help facilitate that? This is where I'm at. Real conversation. You know, I think that, of course, we want to help out. And a lot of us don't know what to say. A lot of us aren't comfortable being vulnerable yet. 
we got to do it. It's what great leaders do, right? You have to be vulnerable. You have to be empathetic. And I think that those are the steps in the right direction, right? And, you know, the hardest part about it is actually staying consistent. Look, you, we've all dealt with people that you call them on Wednesday and they do thanks so much for calling me. You're like, yeah, and you felt good about it. But then they call you Friday and then they call you Sunday. And are you prepared to give that constant attention? And if you aren't, then you need to be aware of this resource, like you mentioned in the beginning of your podcast of where they can reach out for that constant kind of feedback, because we aren't trained in that. I, we all want to pretend that we're great at it. We want to be there, but after a while, sometimes it, it'll also drag you through the mud and we need you to also be conscious and be proactive and, and to be able to help yourself and love yourself the proper way. So you can go and do that to others. So it's tough stuff. It's uh, yeah, especially for us that are uh, not school trained in the, in mental health and things like that. And like you said, 2004, I'd go uh, as far as saying 2013, 14 is before they started actually recognizing the issues and starting to say, hey, we have a lot of messed up uh, men and women now that uh, have been to multiple and uh, we need to start helping them. So it, those of us who served prior to that didn't get that help, like you said earlier. And it was, hey, just go back, put your boots on, get back in the fight or get out. And then those who got out went to a spiral. And now it's up to us to keep each other up, but also know our limits as well, because we'll hurt ourselves if we keep trying to push it and push it and say, hey, I'm taking care of you, but not taking care of me. So that's a great point. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, and again, it, it comes down to closure. A lot of it's just, you never had to, I didn't go to any of my buddy's funerals, right. right? The only funeral I ever met, I ever went to was actually my, one of my good buddies name was Rob Kelly, it's General Kelly's son. And you're actually wearing a Travis Mannion shirt, Rob Kelly's wife wrote a joint book with Travis Manning's wife called a knock on the door and tells about the story of what happens really brutal stuff but Rob Kelly was killed in 2010 and I was here so I was able to go to his funeral but he's the only person I've, I've lost so many Marines and soldiers in my life and he's the only one I've ever convinced to the funeral and you know our closure was brutal like I tell these stories like you know what happens when you go on patrol and your buddy gets killed you come back and they load up his gear and now you just have more room like it's only that. And that's some brutal stuff to deal with. And you deal with that for a long time. And unless you can identify that, right? Like I went to immense amount of therapy to voice these things, find your triggers where what's hitting you hard. What's that one story that just keeps getting you. You can't, you can't get past it's such a roadblock. And a lot of it for me was closure. Like I just never had that, how important it is to in your journey for healing. So, you know, podcasts like this for me and talking about it, and being aggressive and understanding, like, where am I? Feel your feelings, right? Even for me, I'm still there. My wife drops a pot in the in the in the kitchen. I don't love sounds, and I understand that my heart's just beating a little faster, and it starts to create a little undercurrent. Okay, okay. Then the kids got the TV on too loud, then my dog's barking, and then she just asked me, Do you want extra beans? And you get mad. You're like, okay, this is what happened. I had undercurrent. The, Current was too strong for me. How do I get back from that, right? Your partner has to be on board with it. Hey, here's the deal. This is my triggers. This is what's going on. I don't love it right now. Stop dropping pots, but we'll get past that for now. And just being understanding of where you're at, right? Because again, we need you This is to, to help others, right? You said influencing people. All you gotta do is do one to do the next. Next thing you know, 10 people are influenced, 100 people and everyone's influenced from there. So. It's the only way, but we need you, right? We need everyone there to be um, 
you know, their number one advocate and to understand their own views and, and how they're dealing with things. Outstanding. That's a perfect point. Perfect thought. Perfect way to end this too. As, you know, as the time starts to tick away here, Christian, uh, thank you for sharing the stories of Nate Anderson, Billy Miller, Demetrius Gabriel and Demarcus Brown, your brothers in arms and uh, how their, their battle was. Uh, those of you who are listening, uh, check out the BBC special. It, it, it is a real good one as well as the, the two champs in the ring, uh, that podcast show. It's a very long one, but it's a good one too. So get a, get out there and uh, help each other and lift each other up. Turn that bottle up and drag it, crank that jukebox up and hack it. Bartender, pull another round. Here's to our best bad decision situation, no conditions, oh, and memories we all need to drown. So fill your cup, raise it up, jump in, join the club, and float this whiskey river reservoir. Gonna spend the weekend in the deep end of the dive bar. Well, up in here, you're not the only love that left or lost and lonely one who's ever swam against the tide. Thank you, this is your oasis. It's the safest of places that a broken heart can find a hide. So here's a toast, coast to coast. Big old adios to wishes wasted on them falling stars. Gonna spend the weekend in the deep end of a dive bar. It's just chapter after chapter, happy never after, but that's just the way the story goes. For some bar still believers, wear our heart out on our sleeves, just go and wear the neon glow. Happy never after, but that's just the way the story goes. Yeah, we're just never quite belongers, hanger oners, way too long. Just buzzing where the neon glows. We've all got them, let them sink down to the bottom. Doesn't matter who or where you are. We're gonna spend the weekend in the deep end. The water's fine, y'all, so just come on. Hope you enjoyed that. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are...
Six feet deep in God's country. 